What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead as we close out the week. Famed investor Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital is with us. His take on the economy, the markets, and inflation. Does he agree with Scott Minard that a big correction is coming? Plus, oil giant Chevron is having a stellar year as the energy sector outperforms. We'll speak exclusively with Chevron CEO Mike Worth about today's earnings, the ESG movement, and the return of their buybacks. And should China be considered a separate asset class from the rest of the world? A look at what's at stake as regulators crack down. But we begin with today's markets. Christina Partsenevel is here with those numbers. Christina? Thank you. So we got equities lower across the board. But it's not too bad because we are heading for some small declines for the week. But big picture for the month, we're still seeing some strong gains. The S&P 500, actually, if it does hit the gains, we're going to be have the six straight months of gains, which is uh, definitely more of a buy-the-dip uh, trend that we're seeing across the board. But the biggest lagger, consumer discretionary, has to do with Amazon. We also have energy, and we'll bring that up just in terms of sectors. Energy a little bit weaker as well because of some earnings that came out. But I want to move on to talk about why there's a few reasons for this sell-off. First, you got Amazon's latest earnings that have tech investors jittery. Throw in some renewed weakness in China shares, and then the CDC warning that the Delta variant is as contagious as chickenpox. And then you got some talk about peak domestic and global economic growth. And then finally, some end-of-month portfolio rejigging, and you got yourself some weakness across the board. The Delta variant it is definitely a big wrench or throwing a wrench into future plans. And that is bringing down some of the reopening stocks like PEG, the entertainment ETF, along with some crews and airlines that we're seeing, boom, red all across the screen. But we want to end on a little bit of more of a positive note. So some of the biggest movers for the week, UPS, well, they're not all positive. Uh, <laughs> the worst week since February 2020, Activision Blizzard, similar story. AMD, though, they had some stellar earnings out a few days ago and a similar story for Tilray, but still Still inching down 5% for the week. Christina, really? thanks, and nice sleeves. I know, we're matching today. We did it again. <laughs> it's called the tulip sleeve, Yes, people. Uh, we appreciate it. We begin with Chevron reporting profits for the second straight quarter and announcing plans to resume its share buyback program. Pretty good macro sign, by the way, everyone who's been tallying up these buybacks in the market. But for Chevron, it's a sign of confidence from the oil giant whose capital spending is still down 32% from this time last year. Its shares, though, have nearly doubled from their pandemic low. For more, let's bring in our very own Brian Sullivan. He's out at Chevron HQ in San Ramon, California today, alongside Michael Worth, Chevron CEO. Brian? Yeah, Kelly, thanks. And by the way, in a little TV serendipity, random but interesting, on the board of Chevron is Howard Marks' vice chairman of Oak Tree. So it all kind of comes together. I had no idea. Mike, thanks for having us uh, at, at your shop, by the way. Um, your stock is down a bit. Free cash flow is up. EPS beat. Uh, what are investors missing in the numbers today? Well, Brian, we had a very strong quarter. Really strong free cash flow enabled us to meet our organic uh, capital needs, uh, reduce $2.5 billion of debt, uh, pay out $2.5 billion in dividends, and announce a 2 to $3 billion annual share repurchase program. So our portfolio is performing very well 
And uh, you know, we, we didn't come off as hard as other companies in our industry during the pandemic because we came into it with a strong balance sheet. We had a flexible response with capital. We brought spending down. And, uh, and so while we didn't come off as far, we've come back. And I think uh, you know, we're focused on delivering higher returns and lower carbon, which is what our investors are looking for. There is a lot of people that I've met in the Texas oil fields, Mike, that were really hoping that you were going to increase your capital spending. It's down 32 percent from the same period last year because you guys are the big dogs. When you spend more money, the smaller services companies, they make more money. They can drill. Why are dividends and buybacks, the new buyback program, why is that the best use of investor capital right now rather than new wells? more production. Well, we are drilling new wells. Uh, We've got a very capital-efficient program, and so the activity per unit of capital spend has never been higher in our company, and so we can deliver strong production performance and strong cash flow at the same time. Brian, we're in a market that is still seeking uh, equilibrium. Uh, Demand is recovering. Uh, We've got concerns about the pandemic that are still uh, with us, and we've got OPEC, which has gradually been bringing production back into the market, and so uh, we want to be sure that we see things settle out and we really get to a more stable market environment here uh, as we move forward. So we've got a, a very prudent posture for our company and one that well, we will so deliver value. And, and, and by the way, I think OPEC uh, would agree. And on the OPEC now monthly meetings, uh, the last one lasted about three weeks, by the way, and they had the spat, which they've solved. They talk about the same thing. When, and and uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman is very careful to say, we don't know where demand will be. What do you see? we got the Delta variant. We've talked about that. You still largely are work, uh, work remotely here at your headquarters, a couple thousand people normally. What demand do you see? Do you see another slowdown coming? Well, we've seen really strong demand recovery over this year, and, uh, and that really continues. Uh, it's a global phenomenon, uh, stronger in some markets than in others. The softness is in international air travel, but domestic air travel in the United States, within China, is back at or above yeah. pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the roads are, are full of cars now, and so demand has been very strong. Uh, there's, there are uncertainties relative to uh, responses to surges of the pandemic and policies that may uh, be enacted. We've seen some countries in Asia, for instance, that looked like they were in very good shape reinstitute some of these policies which have slowed down economic recovery. And so it's, it's an uncertain and difficult to predict environment, which is why we're maintaining flexibility and strength in our balance sheet and really looking to the long term as opposed to the next quarter or two. I know Kelly's got a question. Kelly. Brian, I appreciate it. And Mike, I want to ask you a question that connects a few different things that are going on here. One is the fact that capital spending is still down and, and you guys are a huge part of capital spending in the economy, Chevron, Exxon and the others. Um, so is part of the reason that spending remains low uh, the ESG movement? You know, there is a, a sense out there that U.S. producers could put more product into the market but are less interested in doing so in a world in which the investor base, the public, you name it, is not really rewarding that. Can you just explain the linkage between your capital spending plans, some of the ESG moves that are out there, and your vision, which I know I think you said maybe by 2040 means you won't be an oil-first company? Yeah, Kelly, uh, it's great to see you. And uh, look, our uh, capital spending is really driven at creating uh, value for our shareholders. And I said earlier we intend to deliver higher returns and lower carbon. 
Uh, our core business will be healthy for many years to come. It's a low growth business, but it's a high margin business. It generates the cash that pays for shareholder distributions and investment into both our traditional and new businesses. Just this week, we announced the creation of Chevron New Energies, which will accelerate our investments in uh, renewable fuels, in hydrogen, in carbon capture, which is responsive to some of the concerns that you're referencing. And so uh, we will uh, allocate capital to good opportunities in that space and keep our, our core business healthy. And I think that's really what investors are looking for. So there is, a, there is an influence of ESG thinking, but it's not what uh, drives the absolute level of capital spending. It really is our view of good opportunities and, uh, and the way we intend to create value for our shareholders. Well, I love Kelly's question because the perfect segue for this, and I hope this doesn't get me thrown out of your headquarters, but we were Tuesday at a mine. By the way, a mine used to own, Chevron through Unical used to own this mine. Talk about the electrification movement. And so uh, we rented a car, an electric car, all electric, and drove from Las Vegas to San Francisco. And that's, that's a different story, which we'll have later on. But when I looked at the infrastructure of the electric driving experience, okay, Every stop was a Chevron, Chevron, Chevron gas station. What's your role in the push for electric cars? You can't sell a gas-powered car after 2035 in California based on what the governor said last year. What is Chevron's role in that push for electrification and the infrastructure build-out? What happens to the Chevron gas stations? Well... Brian, Chevron gas stations are, uh, are likely to be around for a long time to come. You think so? In California, the governor has asked the Air Resources Board, the regulator, to evaluate the technical and economic feasibility of a phase-out of, uh, of internal combustion engines. There's a lot of work still to be done on that process, a public consultation. Uh, so this is not, uh, it's not necessarily as it's been reported, that it's a mandate, it's a study, it's an ambition, a request. Uh, broadly speaking, around the world, demand for our products by virtually every forecast you look at will increase over the next two decades, not decrease. And so I think what you'll see is an evolution in different markets where electrification uh, is making more strides. You'll see electric chargers at our stations. We have electric chargers at stations here in California. Maybe not the ones that, that you encountered, but we, those are coming into the mix. And we respond to what customers are looking for. And so I think you'll see an evolution in our retail offering. Yep. And again, it'll be different in different parts of the world based on uh, the needs of each country. That and, we're and that's in. it, because transportation fuel is still the number one demand. So I, I know you've got to deal with Cummins, uh, hydrogen, there's compressed natural gas. Uh, what, what is the future? of transportation, is it all electric? Is it compressed? Is it hydrogen? Is it gasoline? Is it all the above? What's the future going to, and I say 15 years from now, Seth? Well, I think the short answer is yes. I think light duty vehicles are more easily electrified than heavy duty vehicles. Uh, we're now producing renewable diesel at our uh, refinery in Southern California, and, uh, and that can go into the heavy duty fleet to reduce uh, emissions from that. Uh, we're working on hydrogen, which can be used in uh, shipping uh, and in heavy-duty transportation. We, are, we will soon be making sustainable aviation fuel. So I think you're going to see a diversification yep. of the uh, transport system, but there still will be a significant portion of that in oil and gas for, for decades. We're not all come. electric next year, Mike? Not all electric next year, Brian. Mike Worth, chairman and CEO of Chevron. Mike, really appreciate your time and, and having us here and look forward to seeing employees back at your campus. And Kelly, I just want to let viewers know that uh, we're kind of doing a new model today. We're going to do about another 10 or 15 minutes with Mike, talk more about push to renewables, climate change, 
uh, diversity, inclusion in the workforce, lawsuits, et cetera. That's going to be up on CBS.com in just a bit. So if you want to hear more from Mike, go there later today. We'll push it out as well. So, Kelly, thanks for having us on the exchange. Perfect. Back to you. Thank you, Brian. Thanks to Mike Worth. And I'm looking forward to see him drive a, what do you say, in that electric car all the way to Las Vegas. Coming up, Oak Tree Capital co-chair Howard Marks joins us. We're going to talk about his view on valuations, the Fed's next move, the Delta variance impact on business. Got a lot to cover with him. We're so glad he could join us. Plus, losing Pinterest, shares of the social media company flirting with their worst day ever after reporting a drop in monthly active users. They're down 19%, and we'll tell you what they're pointing to as the culprit after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. back to the exchange. Stocks are sitting near record highs despite uncertainty over inflation, rates, and the Delta variant of COVID. Earlier this week, Stiefel's CEO warned us about high valuations in the market. Last hour, Guggenheim's Scott Miner told CNBC he thinks a sizable correction is coming. So you might expect my next guest to agree and to be sounding some caution bells as well. But maybe not this time. Joining me now with more is legendary investor Howard Marks. He's the co-chair of Oak Tree Capital Management. You're known for your caution, Howard, and your sort of incisive view on the market. So tell me about sort of the, your, your own, I don't want to call it a dilemma, but reflection on what's going on with stock prices and interest rates here. Well, Kelly, it's great to be here with you today. Um, you know, look, stock prices are high relative to earnings, uh, relative to history. Um, and uh, there, we see uh, signs of uh, risky behavior in the marketplace on the part of people who are trying to get a good return in today's low return world. So there are negatives, but that's not enough reason to take defensive action. There are also positives. And the greatest positive is the strength of the uh, US economy at this time and, and strength that will probably last for at least another year. So I think that the two things are in balance. The other thing is that a bubble is an irrational uh, uh, lift in the stock market. Today's levels are not irrational. They're ultra high because interest rates are the lowest they've ever been. Interest rates do a great deal to determine the pricing of assets. And when interest rates are low, the returns on assets prospectively should be low in line, which means that the prices will be high. So I, I, I think this is not a time to be aggressive. Uh, but neither is it, in my opinion, 
a time to be highly cautious. In saying all of this, Howard, has your own thinking on this market evolved? Because we've been in a period of, of very low interest rates for a long time, and they just keep sinking. You know, I was just reading some research about how low real rates are and how they're likely to stay that way for everything from the Fed keeping rates lower than normal to a supply-demand imbalance for Treasuries and that kind of thing. You know, is there a new playbook now? Well, you know, Kelly, for, for uh, months, if not a few years, the mantra has been lower for longer. The, the Fed wants to be supportive of the economy, and the main way they do that, in addition to injecting a lot of liquidity, is by keeping rates low. Um, the real question is, is how long will they be able to do that for? Um, we, number one, if they keep rates low, they risk the economy overheating. Number two, if it overheats, we risk having inflation, uh, higher inflation. Number three, uh, if we get higher inflation, rates probably have to go up because people will not uh, buy uh, instruments, uh, debt instruments to give them negative real yields. Um, and number four, if the economy overheats, then the Fed will have to raise interest rates to cool it off. So uh, there are lots of there are lots of risks. It's not sufficient to say, well, the Fed wants to keep rates low. We know it does. Uh, but, uh, you know, on the other hand, we're starting to hear, you know, as they as they say, they're thinking about thinking about uh, raising rates uh, a little. And I think that's in order. So let me ask you, we, you know, I often ask about stock prices, but really you guys invest in credit. So uh, we've seen a lot of headlines over the past month where yields on junk or high yield debt was below the inflation rate for the first time ever and that kind of thing. Are the price, but many people point to how strong credit markets have been as a source of support for equities, whether it's financial engineering, share buybacks, you know, you name it, that that's kind of part of what contributes to the, the bullishness out there. But, you know, are these prices rational to you, the levels at which companies are able to borrow? They're rational relative to the level of interest rates. You know, uh, let's say high yield bonds. High yield bonds today yield around 4%. And uh, the 10-year treasury yields 1.2. So that's a spread of 2.8%. And that's low, but not absurdly low. Um, and uh, so I think that most assets are selling at prices which are fair relative to each other and relative to interest rates, just low in the absolute because interest rates are so low in the absolute. I should say the prices of assets are high in the absolute mm -hmm. because the interest rates are so low in the absolute. So I don't, I don't see anything, uh, specific, uh, any large asset classes that are that seem ridiculously overpriced relative to other asset classes and relative to interest rates. Right. It's just that everything, everything is elevated today. So let me ask you then about this related question. Number one, it sounds like then everything is at risk if interest rates rise, potentially. It's just that no one reasonably thinks that's going to happen. Um, but if that is a giant risk out there, what happens to people who say they don't want to be exposed to that risk, they'd rather move to the sidelines until interest rates normalize? And number two, on that very question, you think that the Fed needs to return to more of a free market in money with rates that are naturally occurring. How would you yes. bring this all together? Well, um, look, if you have more money than you need to live on, then the first purpose, and, and I'm talking mainly to, to uh, individual investors, then the first purpose of your investing, in my opinion, should be to make you comfortable. 
if you're uncomfortable with with your current level of investing, you should reduce it. Uh, you should sell. There's an old saying, sell down to your comfort level. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking money out of the market if you want to increase your comfort. And as long as you're willing to be on the sidelines and watch other people make money if the market goes up. Now, we don't know if it's going to go up or not. But so it's it, there's a tension. How important is it to you to eliminate future losses by getting out? And how important is it to participate in future gains by staying in? You can't have both. That's the key in investing. You know, there's always the one hand and the other hand. So, uh, you know, um, as I say, if people want to reduce their holdings level, let them. But they have to realize that uh, it, that the market could could be very healthy for a long time. Look, look at this year. I mean, some people were, were saying bubble. Uh uh, six nine months ago, uh, and and if you took your money out and you sat on the sidelines, you missed out on twenty percent gains yeah. or something like that. And th- so there, there's there's no uh, there's there's no there's nothing in investing. There's nothing magical. So there's nothing you can do which will give you the gains if the market goes up, but not the losses if it goes down. Each individual investor has to decide what's most important to them. Well, and I have time for one last question. I'm torn between asking uh, if you have a point of view on Robinhood and what it's done uh, for this investing in psychology that we've been discussing, if you think it's sort of a, a force for good or maybe a, a risk spot in the long run. That's the one question I have. And the other one is for you to explain, you know, how the Fed would get to more naturally occurring rates. So I'll let you pick right. which one you want. Well, I'll pick, I'll pick the latter. Okay. Uh, because I can come back another time and talk about Robinhood. But let's talk about about what you said. You 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 took two phrases that are among my favorite phrases from the memo that went out last night. One is that uh, that that we don't have a free market in money. The free market is the best allocator of resources. If there's labor, the free market, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand, takes it where it will do the most good or be the most profitable. Uh, And and so, you know, most of us trust the free market system to allocate resources. We don't have a free market in money. The, 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 the Fed has held interest rates, in my opinion, artificially low for, uh, well, well over a decade. The global financial crisis ended in 09 and, and rates have been low the, the, despite the recovery. Um, and, and so I would like to see what I call naturally occurring interest rates the rates that the economy and, and the invisible hand would move us to if rates were free to do their thing, which they're not. All right. I think uh, I think that we'll all be better off if if we get there. Well, now, since I teased it, I just have to know, do you, what, what's your take on Robin Hood? Well, Robin Hood brought a lot of people into the market, as I understand it, uh, in, uh, let's say, the March, April period of 2020. Uh, it's healthy to introduce people to uh, to investing. Investing is an important thing, and, and everybody who has some extra money should invest, um, it, consistent with their own psyches. Uh, the, the only question is, you know, if people came in on March 23rd, and here we are July 20, 30th, uh, that's uh, 16 months in which everybody's made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So I don't want investors to have the wrong expectation that it's always going to be like this because it's not. We will have ups and downs. 
We always have ups and downs. In the long run, investing is profitable. In the long run, people should have investments and they should they should make investments and not interfere with the process by getting in and out and in and out. Most people can't do that right. So get in, stay in. That I think that's part of the lesson of Robin Hood, but have realistic expectations about the future you'll have to live through. Well, Howard, I appreciate uh, you talking about all of these things and joining us today. Really, really good to see you. Thank you. Great seeing you, Kelly. Howard Marks is the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management. And coming up, we'll speak exclusively with the CEO of Texas-based Frost Bank. The company's bottom line getting a big boost this quarter thanks to PPP loans in the Lone Star State. We're going to speak to him about the pandemic response and the Delta variant spreading now. The exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's down 135 uh, points as we look to close out the week. And in fact, the Dow and S&P have dipped negative, uh, putting all the major indices on pace to close the week lower with the Nasdaq, the biggest laggard since Monday. Here's a little bit of a sense of how we've pulled through. here. You can see most of the damage was done earlier on. We've kind of been treading water since then. So even though we've been near record highs this week, we're also getting a little top heavy as we look to close things out. Let's get over to John Ford for a CNBC News update now. Hi, John. Hey, Kelly. Well, here's what is happening at this hour. The Senate has voted to begin debate on a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. Concerns about finalizing the text of the bill delayed the vote. Majority Leader Schumer says the Senate could be finished with the bill in a matter of days. Flash flooding is being blamed for one death in eastern Kentucky as fast-rising waters swept an occupied trailer home off its foundation. Heavy damage has been reported in multiple counties. And health officials looking at new ways to fight the coronavirus after CDC warned Congress the Delta variant is as contagious as chickenpox. In a confidential document reviewed by CNBC, CDC officials write the war has changed. And on the news, Shep will speak to a coronavirus expert who helped the CDC with outbreak data that led to the new warnings tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, back to you. All right, John, thank you very much, John Fort. Well, a pin and a miss, wood buys hood, and business is about to get even more casual. It's all in rapid fire in just a moment, but first it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for the markets next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. The earnings parade continues with the reopening trade in focus this week. We'll get reports from Marriott and Hyatt Hotels, TripAdvisor, Expedia, and Booking Holdings. And investors will place their bets as DraftKings, MGM Resorts, and Caesars Entertainment release results. Automakers, General Motors, and Toyota will also announce results, giving us a look at how the chip shortage has impacted their bottom lines. Lyft and Uber also out with earnings. Lyft climbing double digits this year, while Uber is down nearly 10%. We'll see what Moderna's COVID vaccine meant for revenues on Thursday. Plus, Virgin Galactic reports just weeks after Sir Richard Branson went to space. Shares are up 33% over the past three months. Construction spending is out on Monday amid volatile lumber prices. 
and July's jobs report closes out the week. Inflation Hawks will be keeping a close eye on wage increases. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And joining me to break down the headlines, Michael Santoli is here, joined by Wall Street Journal columnist and CNBC contributor Joanna Stern, and Matt Maley, who is managing director at Miller Tabak and has joined the fray today. Welcome, everybody. First up, it wasn't just Amazon that reported a leveling off of demand last night, and we'll get to Amazon in just a moment. But first, let's talk Pinterest. This is the mover of the day. The shares are plunging as its user base declined. The company reported just over $450 million monthly active users in the second quarter. That was 30 million short of estimates and a 5% drop from Q1. They're saying usage dropped as people returned to socializing in person. We've been hearing it across the board this week. Facebook fell shy of estimates for monthly users. Twitter missed daily user forecasts and Pinterest shares are down more than 18% today. Matt Maley, one of the topics we've been debating here for some time this year is whether the FANG trade is over. What does this week tell you? Well, it definitely is a concern. I mean, you know, I, I've, it's funny because I've never been a huge uh, a fan of Pinterest, but a lot of people <laughs> have been. But the thing is, you know, a lot of these stocks that had been dead money for a while, but a lot of tech stocks, but like Facebook broke out, uh, Apple broke out, even Microsoft, they all broke out. Uh, but Pinterest, that's been, the Pinterest has been dead money uh, continually since February. And it's kind of been in this downward sloping trend channel, and this just takes it right back down to the lower end of that. And, I, and my concern is that on a technical basis, you break below 55.50, uh, it's uh, lows from the spring, uh, people are just going to throw in the towel and start dumping the stock. So uh, I'd be very careful about uh, you know, buying this one on weakness. Although, Joanna, this is one of those, you know, the stocks are going to, you know, they're going to overly, what am I trying to say, they're going to go up too much on the way up, they'll probably come down too much on the way down. But it was interesting to look beneath the hood here. Pinterest is actually making a lot more money on the users it does have, $1.32 versus the $1.17 estimate. So, you know, it's introducing new ways to kind of buy things now. If it ultimately comes out of this as making more money for the users it does have, isn't that in the interest of investors in the long run? Yeah, well, first, I was hoping that Matt was going to there promote his uh, knitting Pinterest board. So I'll have to come back to the show for that next time. But I think what we're seeing across the board was it is it was unsustainable for any of these services or social media companies to keep that level of active user time. Right. We had a lot of time during the pandemic. It went toward these services. And now we're going to pull back that time. And so as you bring up, Kelly, I think there's an interesting product perspective of how when you're on the product, what are you doing there then? And is there a way that the company either gets you to spend more time there or spend more money or engage more with advertising or whatever it may be, the business model? But the idea that we're going to now you know, come back at, at any point, really, to that kind of pandemic time engagement and active user time, we're seeing it across at Twitter, Pinterest, yeah. Amazon. That's just not realistic. And Mike, it was interesting, and we'll have more on this next hour, but um, Morgan Stanley does a survey of its interns every summer to try to figure out what the kids, you know, order and use and do and all this stuff. And in the case of social media, Pinterest had like 1% of people, you know, interns responding and say they had anything to do with it. So again, we all know this is not like Snapchat, but if it's if it's popular with the, dare I suggest, boomer crowd, you know, those of us, millennials, whoever it is, us old people who have a little bit more disposable income, is that still, you know, yeah. a decent business model in the long run? It, it could be a decent business model. It's a matter of how big the actual company is going to be. It's still more than a $35 billion market cap. It's got a little bit of a Twitter issue where intense engagement among those who use it 
but only a minority of people use it. It's not a universal app necessarily. The other piece of it is uh, not, you, we've seen the separation between social media that is compatible with finding stuff to do out in the real world, like Snap and Google, and those that are much more about just you know eyeball time on the screen while you're killing time for doing other things. And also, finally, Pinterest might have a link to a cooling off of the housing market. The home renovation trend True. probably peaked early part of this year. Yeah, if that's the case, then everyone should be snapping up to attention uh, what Pinterest shares are doing. So uh, sort of pivoting to Amazon, let's stay on this theme and maybe broaden this out a little bit to talk about what's going on with growth stocks and FANG more broadly. Amazon shares are having one of their worst days in quite some time. They had their first revenue miss in three years. They're warning of slowdowns ahead. The company is blaming slowing growth rates on consumers taking trips and going out versus online shopping and other lockdown behaviors. They reflected the last full quarter of Jeff Bezos' tenure as well. Shares are down less than 7% right now. So, Matt, put this one in, in kind of the broader context. You know, there's overlap between the e-commerce names that did well during the pandemic and the FANG trade that has been dominating for a decade. Where is this pointing you next? Well, you know, it, 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 there's no question this is a concern. If it had just been, you know, for instance, if it had just been their margins that disappointed, I would just say, well, this is just, uh, you know, uh, Amazon once again investing in their own business, and so they're cutting back on their profits. But when the revenues come down, uh, that's a concern, especially when you have these new, uh, uh, you know, situation coming down that people are talking about peak growth, peak earnings. Uh, is that going to be a problem? I will say, though, however, just you know, people need to realize that this is a really an overshoot on the downside for technical reasons. And the reason is that the stock had broken out of this sideways range that had been in for 10 months. So a lot of momentum money went piling into the, into the stock the last couple of weeks. Now that it's fallen back into that, into that sideways range, a bunch of that uh, fast money momentum players have just dumped, dumped the stock. Hmm. So it's still a great long-term company, a great long-term play. And a little bit, the, the outsized move today, I think, has more has to do with that than their real reason. Uh, Joanna, what would you add about Amazon's performance? I mean, I'm, this is another situation, too, where I'm interested to see, well, we've got holiday, we've got a lot of other spending times coming up, right? So looking forward, it seems like, okay, this is probably not that big of a hit. But I'm also really looking to see these companies, I mean, this is a moment for them, I think, to innovate, again, on product and thinking about, okay, during the pandemic, we saw these crazy levels, we saw these record highs. How are there places where we can squeeze that out? What did they learn from that? I mean, I've, every time I talk to a tech executive right now, my biggest question is, what did you learn for the future from the pandemic? And I hear lots of, you know, a lot of marketing talk, but I also hear some, some real product talk as well. You know, Mike, this, this might be totally a side note, but I think I've been an Amazon Prime member since 2005. In just the past couple of weeks, we were looking at home to see, do we really need to be Amazon Prime members? <laughs> and, I, you know, it's just an interesting exercise. It was sort of like, well, we just paid for the yearly membership. So, yeah, I guess we'll, you know, but we don't really watch a lot of the videos. And anyhow, this question for you is more about the trade. Like I was asking Mar uh, Matt Maley about where is the thing trade going from here? Well, I mean, I do think that if you want to look at the way Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft reacted in a negative way to what are generally on objectively pretty good results, it's only dialed you back a week or a month wow. in terms of, you know, where these stock prices were before. So we're taking back some of this last little burst uh, of upside. I do think that there's losing a little bit of, of specialness, or at least when it comes to just, you know, how much they can grow year over year, uh, this sense that they, you know, need to grow into the premium valuations they've had. That's fair. When it comes to Amazon, what's interesting is if you talk to an investor that loves the Amazon investment thesis, it's about AWS, cloud services. It's about Prime, which is just a stickiness, you know, of the subscription model, and even advertising as a growth factor. Those three things were fine. 
in the, in the latest quarter. And so the question is, if it can keep growing at 20 percent top line, which it did this time, uh, it probably is is OK here longer term, even if it comes off uh, off the boil a little bit in yeah. terms of, you know, excitement level. Very well said. I mean, those kind of growth rates are still scarce. A quick question to both you and Matt here about Robinhood. We did learn that Kathy Wood was buying up about 1.3 million shares for her ARK Innovation ETF. So even though it had a rough debut yesterday, it's snapping back up today. And she's on the record saying, Mike, that ARK Innovation includes her highest conviction names. Why do you think she sees value here for Robinhood? I think it's just by the disruptor. Uh, now, the, the big question is not whether Robinhood is a major disruptor to retail uh, trading and investment services. It is, has the disruption already mostly happened? Um, and, you know, just what's the value of the loyalty of the new coming uh, investor base that they've, they've collected here? And it's a big head start. Uh, lots of tons, tons of small accounts, as we discussed. So I, it's very consistent, I think, with the ARC approach in general, which is, you know, buy the disruptive name in the fast growing market and worry about the, you know, the profitability uh, sometime later. Exactly. And Matt, a quick word on this one. Yeah, I just think, uh, the, you know, it was, the, the IPO wasn't priced correctly, so don't worry about the, the immediate uh, reaction of the stock right now. I guess my point is, you know, you know Mr. Wonderful was on, <laughs> on CNBC this morning talking about they're here to stay, Robin is here to stay. I agree. I guess my point is build a position over a period of time, over several months, and we'll give it some time to find its, 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 its true value because uh, it's going to take a little bit of time. Very sensible advice. You know, you could go, yeah, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like what you should do with the stock, you know, like, as you're thinking about how, what Howard Marks said earlier on. Before we go, everybody, the most important issue of the day is the fact that apparently, according to our Lauren Thomas on CNBC.com, people are going to be wearing athleisure for their return to the office, Joanna, which may not, not be happening because of Delta. Um, but is the we thought the whole point was going to be that when people go back to work, they're going back to heels and business suits. Her piece suggests not so much. It, I mean, it's all shaping up to be a pretty good time for pants, it seems. Seems like everyone's going to buy pants. You had the CEO of Levi saying that 35 believes 35% of people's waistlines change. So you add the waistline changing. I can't believe I'm talking about this. Uh, you know, people's sizes changing, plus the style of the size of, of these pants changing. I'm just really here to tell you pants. And buy I'm here pants. to tell you athleisure trade is still doing pretty well this year. Under Armour names up about 20%. And maybe that's why the stretchy pants are more attractive than ever. Going to leave it right there. Mike Santoli, Joanna Stern, Matt Maley, thank you all very much on this Friday for Rapid Fire. And coming up, we're going to follow the funds where the hedgies got in and the sectors they build out of. We have those details next. And you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange Podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Shares of regional bank Cullen Frost is slightly lower today despite strong second quarter earnings. The Texas-based bank has $46 billion in assets, making it one of the 50 biggest banks in the country. So far this year, they've seen record interest in loans and new checking accounts. So even with the threat of Delta, does that tell us it could be full steam ahead for the recovery? Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Phil Green, the chairman and CEO of Frost Bank. Phil, it's great to have you Welcome. And um, talking sort of as up to date as possible, are you seeing improving trends in terms of loan demand? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, yes, we are. We saw an inflection point in our loan uh, volumes in June, and we've seen follow on for that in July. I was particularly interested to see that commercial and industrial loans, as opposed to just commercial real estate and consumer loans, saw an inflection point in June. So that means to us that businesses are starting to borrow 
and are starting to use funds in order to move their businesses forward. I want to ask you about some surprising new entrants to the competitive landscape in banking, which is about to get even more complex and interesting, maybe on the crypto front. But putting that aside, even the entry of someone like Walmart, which is trying to do innovative things with certain forms of overdraft protection and otherwise, are they, and this is just starting to get underway, but are these competing away for traditional deposits from your core customer or is it kind of business as usual as far as you're concerned with basically, I'm sure down there, what must be true in many parts of the country, higher checking balances than we've seen in some time thanks to the pandemic payments? Well, first of all, you're right about those higher balances. We've seen deposit growth of in excess of 20% for the last couple of years. You know, uh, with regard to new entrants, uh, it could be Walmart, it could be, you know, the fintechs, it could be neobanks. Everybody's competing in our space. And, um, and what I think they're doing is they're challenging assumed constraints that have been there in the banking industry over the last several years. And one of the things that we're doing, I think banks should be doing, is responding to those. Because I think there's no reason why us, for example, can't respond to a lot of the, the changes and changing expectations that have been brought on, in some cases, by the neobanks. I'll give you a couple of examples. In our case, we introduced... Um, what we call uh, early payday just a couple of weeks ago mm. where you can get your paycheck a couple of days early because we'll pay the ACH file sooner. We'll spot that money to our customers. And also we introduced something back in April called overdraft grace so that if you have an overdraft of $100 or less, we'll pay it for you. We won't charge you anything. So we've got the ability to compete with the neobanks, but we also bring a hybrid banking model where we also bring physical locations to the uh, to the customer and uh, someone who, when you call, will actually answer the phone sure. and take care of you with great customer service. Yeah, that's like my number one criteria for doing business with anybody these days. Literally, I have my pediatrician because they have an actual person who answers the phone. I'm sure they're well qualified, but, you know, that was really important. Um, question on the crypto space, which you mentioned ACH payments. And, you know, one of the things that I think crypto is trying to innovate is the traditional settlement times involved in banking by making it immediate, by making it non uh, refundable, that sort of thing. You know, obviously there's a lot of concern about being exposed to the crypto world in general, but are you guys looking at any elements of payments and innovation there as ways to improve upon the current infrastructure? Because especially if you're a regional bank, you have to be looking to the future to say, what is what are we going to offer vis-a-vis -vis the big banking giants and the massive fintechs? Well, absolutely. And, and Kelly, you got to keep your eye on where the puck's going, not where it is. Right. Uh, I would say, first of all, with regard to payments, uh, the banking system has done a, a good job, I believe, with uh, with uh, functionality, let's say like Zelle, where you actually do get mm -hmm. immediate payments, where you do get, uh, you know, it's their final in terms of the, uh, the transaction. Uh, crypto will be interesting to watch. Uh, Bitcoin is the one that gets the most press, but I don't think it's, uh, I think it's generally held that it's not a very good uh, efficient way of exchanging today. There'll be changes to that over time. And we're going to, and we are uh, exploring and understanding better what that market means. Uh, I think there's a lot of regulation, a lot of the regulatory environment's got to get decided on it. But uh, just like we have with so many other technologies over time, it'll be one that we keep up with. Yeah, no, and I know I should ask you about interest rates and the Fed and all the traditional stuff. But like you said, keeping an eye on where the puck is going and all this is just very good to get your point of view. Phil, thanks for joining us today. We do appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Phil Green of Frostbank down in Texas.
Well, the government crackdown on companies in China is pushing markets lower across Asia for the month now. It's creating concerns about how to handle Chinese equities here in the U.S., and we'll have the details on these trades next. Welcome back, everybody. Markets across Asia are falling significantly in the month of July as China cracks down on its companies. And those government actions have sparked serious debate about Chinese equities over here. Bob Bassani joins me now with that story. Bob? Hello, Kelly. We're closing out a great month for U.S. stocks. It's been a disastrous month for China stocks and investors in Asia in general. Just take a look here. All the U.S. listed big cap China stocks are down. They're down again today. Baidu, Alibaba, Pinduoduo capping a month from hell that saw most of these names down anywhere from 11% to 30% in the case of Tencent Music. The weakness in China spilled over into other Asian sectors. Japan was down, Korea's down, Thailand, the Philippines, they were all down so far this month. Now, the concern is that the regulatory risks are much greater than investors had anticipated. In fact, risks from both China regulators seeking to rein in everything from tech to education to food delivery and risk from U.S. regulators like SEC Chair Gary Gensler, who's now calling for more disclosure from Chinese firms regarding their ownership structure. Uh, structure. After a decade where U.S. investors have increased their exposure to China, a lot of people are now debating whether China should be considered a completely separate asset class from the U.S. and indeed from the rest of the world. That owning China on an equal market cap weighted basis is not going to be feasible due to the very, very high regulatory risk. One final problem here for international investors. The United States has consistently outperformed markets overseas for more than a decade. And I don't mean just China. I mean including developed countries like Japan, for example, but it's dramatically outperformed in China. You can see here the differences here. It's one more reason international investors have been on the defensive. And Kelly, the real fault line here is between the people who believe that China is still investable, that particularly the Chinese consumer is an investable asset class, and those who say, you know, essentially, no matter whether you're a private enterprise or you're a state-owned enterprise, they're all government-owned enterprises yep. at this point. And there is really big, big risks in owning them. Kelly? And that's a potentially massive sea change, Bob. Thank you so much, our Bob Bassani. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.